Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Emilia Skirmund, a historical martial arts instructor and a virologist who I can imagine has all sorts of um, nasty stories about viruses to tell. And of course, everybody these days thinks they're an expert. So we'll get into that in the interview. So without further ado, Emilia, welcome to the show. Hi, it is very nice to well meet you as well and talk to you today. <laughs> hey, so whereabouts are you? Uh, I'm in Oxford at the moment, uh, so in the UK. Uh, so I'm originally from Poland, but I moved to the UK 11 years ago, and right now I live in Oxford. Okay, and is that because you work at the university there? Yes, I work at the University of Oxford. Okay. Now, I was born in Cambridge, mm. and so I'm very sorry, but it is, it's, it's sort of baked into my DNA that Oxford is an absolute stink hole and no one should ever go there, but... <laughs> But I, I, I am I am reliably informed that that's not true. So do you like living in Oxford? I really like being in Oxford. It is a very nice uh, city. Uh, before I live in London, uh, and I also like London, but right now when I move to the smaller city, which is Oxford, I can see why London is very, very tiring and hectic. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you should definitely also have a look at Cambridge, because... Yes. Cambridge like has all the good bits of Oxford and none of the bad ones. So, uh, yeah, I heard once a comparison which is amazing. It is like Oxford is like Cambridge if it would be built by Disney. So. Right there, you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, now let let me just get us gently closer to our topic. Um, I ask most of my guests this: um, How did you get into historical martial arts? What drew you to it? So, uh, that was a long time ago, because I was 16 at the time, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and I really liked uh, fantasy and role-playing games and stuff like that, uh, and I also liked swords. Uh, and at some point, my friend at school said that she's going for uh, training, uh, sword-fighting training, and I went with her, and I just... Loved it. And since then, I'm doing it. So that was in Poland? That was in Poland, yes. That was in Poland and that was right now, uh, well, uh, many years ago, because it will be, I think, almost 20 years ago, maybe 19 years ago. Yes. Okay. Uh, so if you don't mind my asking, who were you training with in Poland? So I don't think they exist anymore. Uh, the name of the group was Lorica. Uh, and uh, it is also Weapons Academy. Uh, right now, the instructors from it, from this group, uh, also have a fencing school uh, in Warsaw, uh, but uh, it's not it's not the same group. Okay. Um, so, uh, who do you train with in Oxford? Oh, uh, I have my own school here. It's the School of the Swords, uh, and I'm the leading instructor. So I'm I'm training with. Well, not only myself, but my students. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so you started your own historical fencing club. Yes. Um, actually, the last person I interviewed for the show, and his interview will probably come out before yours, 
Um, he's also in Oxford. His name is Milo Thurston. He runs the Lineker School of Defense. You must know him. I know, I know, Milo. But we don't have that much of contact, to be fair. Well, no, because he's, he's a like, early 18th century Napoleonic sort of person yeah. and, and a small sword man and a Hope's New Method sort of uh, instructor. So um, I take it you are not doing mostly small sword. You're doing, like, rapier and longsword and... Yes, yes, we're doing uh, quite a selection. Uh, so our the main weapon uh, which we are training with, in fact, is longsword, Fiorat uh, okay. longsword. Uh, but uh, okay, now you're speaking my language. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I love Fiorat. Uh, and we do also uh, wrestling and dagger. Uh, so oh, you have to. It's part of the system. Uh, exactly, exactly. So that's that's what we mainly train with. But we also, I'm also an instructor uh, of rapier, uh, and I also do tomahawk. Okay. Uh, and side swords, so quite a selection. <laughs> okay, so I imagine you're, you're you're teaching your own interpretation of Fiore. Is that correct? Uh, I would say so. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, and as to rapier, what sort of rapier are you doing? Mostly Italian rapier, uh, but uh, I've done also some like war rapier, so Saviolo, which you can argue mm-hmm. it's Italian. Uh, but yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, well, it's also German side sword because that's war uh, side sword rapier. War rapier, uh, it's it's so complicated. So yeah, I also done some of it. <laughs> yeah, I, okay. Historical martial arts systems and historical weapons very often don't fit neatly into our nice modern categories. Right. I mean, like, you know, none of the Italian rapier masters ever referred to a rapier in any of their books ever. It's just the sword. Yeah, Do this with your sword. That's true. Um, so what rapier sources do you study? Uh, so uh, it is, it is again, a selection. Uh, I looked at uh, uh, Gigantes. Uh, mm-hmm. I like Giganti. It's it's yes. very easy, especially for, for beginners. Uh, and... Uh, to be honest, uh, I I have a selection of quite a few of Italian uh, masters, and I just mix and match. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So I I'm guessing that okay. Most of us that study rapier, we look at like Fabris and Capoferro and Giganti, and those those are like the main sources, and it's. The same basic instructions, um, some have different like takes on specific actions and there'll be some actions in some books and not in others. Fabris seems to have this sort of rather odd mechanics preferences. Yeah, if you want to hurt your back. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I mean, I, I can see, I can see sort of teaching a kind of generic, this is earlier 17th century Italian rapier and you're drawing from all these sources. Um, It's not my approach. I like to be very much by the book. Um, You know, so on this day we are doing Capoferro rapier and it's like this and this is what it's like in the book and da 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 because I'm extremely pedantic. (laughs) No, I I agree. Uh, I sometimes doing that as well. It's Mm -hmm. sometimes that uh, when I'm preparing a lesson and I'm, for example doing fabrics or or something mm-hmm. like that then in my mind i remember uh, another play from from another book which quite well matches uh, the topic of the lesson 
uh, and then just try to also incorporate incorporate that into the uh, into the lesson. So that's that's that. Sure, fair enough. Um, and so you started your club. Um, sorry, you said at the School of the Sword, is that correct? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, we are uh, a branch of the School of the Sword. Ah, okay, so that's Fran Terminiello's kind of umbrella school, is that correct? Yes, yes, that's uh, Okay. If you don't mind asking, how does that actually work? Uh, you mean being a branch? <laughs> yeah, because, you know, I have branches all over the place and mm-hmm. I started out sort of trying to keep them as like, recognizably branches of the school so that mm-hmm. anyone who showed up would go, oh, okay, this is guy's sword school thing. And mm-hmm. uh, sort of a, like a franchise almost. It wasn't a business, mm-hmm. but like a franchise. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I gave it up because it didn't really suit the character of the clubs that were forming and wanting to join. Um, but I, I don't have strong feelings about it either way. So I'm just curious as to how, how that... Um, how that system works and you know I had Fran on the show like last year she was like my third guest I think <laughs> and I should have asked her then <laughs> uh, I mean it's uh, we are not very uh, very strict when it mm-hmm. goes to branches for example uh, because we have three branches at the moment uh, one in uh, Godalming one in Reading and right now one in Oxford and uh, the branch in Godalming and Reading they teach mostly uh, side sword and rapier right. uh, but I said that I want to teach uh, mainly long sword obviously mm-hmm. some some side sword and rapier as well but start with long sword and uh, it was fine so uh, I'm, I'm a bit, we are a bit different than the other branches, but again, uh, we don't, I don't know how, how to really uh, say, it's, we are three separate clubs, but mm-hmm. we have some events when we meet uh, also, or our members from each branch can go to the trainings to the other branches uh, if they want. Uh, and there are sparrings, uh, obviously when there is no pandemic, there are sparrings <laughs> at each branch uh, every every month as well. So there is quite, it is good because it is quite a lot of uh, lessons, quite a lot of sparrings uh, in three different locations and everybody can go to, the, uh, to them. So if somebody wants, they can do a lot of sword fighting every week. <laughs> Excellent. I guess because Oxford, um, Godalming and Reading aren't that far from each other, are they? Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's like very easy to reach by train uh, from each location to, to the other location. It is very easy. Okay. So someone who's a member of the school, the sword can just go to any of these classes, whatever. Okay. Yeah. And I guess you have some sort of shared admin yes we have we have a board we have shared also uh money (laughs) okay so we can uh also uh book the halls uh and also we have uh thanks to that we have our club kit so each club have their own their own kit uh and not every club has that Sometimes members need to buy their own stuff from the beginning. Sure. Uh, and the good thing is that we have that uh, just in our in our club. So the beginner's lessons are quite easy. Yeah, it makes a huge difference when you can actually equip the beginners properly. Yeah. Like the, 
the easiest thing I found, well, the, the unintended consequence I found of getting a permanent training space is that students started leaving their swords and masks there. And then I invented a rule, which was if it's dusty or rusty, anybody can use it and it goes on the beginner's rack, right? So because people get enthusiastic and they buy a weapon and they leave it at the sal and then they get busy or whatever, their weapon gets dusty, it goes on the beginner's rack. Of course, they can come and reclaim it any time. Yeah. It's, they still own it. Um, but with enough turnover and enough sort of people coming through, within about a year, we could equip a beginner's course of like 25 students with steel long wow. swords and masks. Yeah, wow. it was amazing. It was, it was absolutely, it was completely unexpected. That's not why I rented a sal. And it would have been cheaper just to buy the, all of that equipment because sals are really expensive. But it's like one of the, the, uh, the side benefits of having a permanent space. And also, of course, um, reducing the barriers to entry for the students so that they, they don't have to buy anything or you know, they just show up and everything is provided and so they can try it out and yeah, we have some students who trained for like four or five years without ever buying a sword because they had no money. But it didn't matter because they could just use the club kit. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So that's having club kits or this like kit they can borrow uh, is is uh, is very good. Uh, so uh, yeah, so that's basically basically how the school of the sword works. Uh, we don't have sadly permanent space. So that's, it's expensive. That's, that's a big, <laughs> big problem sometimes. Uh, but maybe uh, I guess in Oxford it would be super expensive. So. Well, yeah, I can imagine. You know, some nice big training hall in Oxford is not not going to be cheap. I mean, in in Helsinki, um, I managed to find a space that was like a twenty minute bus ride from the centre of town oh. in a kind of dodgy neighbourhood. The sort of neighborhood where you probably wouldn't want to buy an apartment. Um, and it's in a like industrial building mm-hmm. with like car fixing garages on the ground floor. And we were on the floor above and it was great. It was like cheap and accessible. Um, but it was cheap because it was in a horrible neighborhood and it was like a 20 odd minute bus ride out of town. Um, I think, I think, yeah, Oxford's a bit posh for that sort of thing. <laughs> yes, it is, uh, and the places which would be cheaper are not very well accessible without a car, and that right. also would be a problem. Yeah, that's that's sort of an English thing. I noticed when we moved here, um, like five years ago from Finland, my intention was we could live without a car, and after like nine months of my children missing out on stuff because no one could give us a ride or there weren't any taxis or whatever, and it was just so damn inconvenient. I bought a car and now we have two (laughs) (laughs) that was not the intention I was like this will be great this will be super green and environmentally friendly and uh, but no in England you need a car unfortunately (laughs) unless you live in the centre of London in which case yes I wanted to say that (laughs) yeah my sister lives in um, near Hampstead and she's I don't think she's ever owned a car Uh, it's in London it's even like it's not good to have a car because it's hard to get anywhere. You need to pay additional taxes. Yeah. And also, if you want to get out of London, you will probably spend more time trying to get out of London than to get from London to this to this place you want to go. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, much better. Like, you know, Ipswich is an hour from the centre of London. 
right? If I get to the train station here, I am an hour from Liverpool Street, right? It's like super convenient. Driving, oh my God, it's yeah. just a, it's a mess. Um, anyway, we sort of got a little bit off topic there. Let me, <laughs> let me, let me gently sort of wiggle us back. <laughs> Listeners will forgive us, I am sure. Okay, you're a virologist and there is a viral plague going on, which is kind I of know <laughs> no, Right, okay. I have no idea what that's like, but my I imagine that it's a bit like, you know, being a medievalist, going to see a movie like A Knight's Tale or whatever, and just seeing all these complete misunderstandings of medieval culture, medieval history, and knights, and armor, and all that sort of stuff on the screen for a couple of hours, and it's pretty dreadful. But you can get up and leave any time you want, but you are entirely surrounded by this this constant barrage of people who know absolutely nothing about virology spouting on about viruses and how they work. Is that fair? Uh, that is very fair. I really want somebody to let me out from the cinema. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, it is it is tiring <laughs> at the moment after one more than one and a half year uh, still mm-hmm. everybody thinks that they're uh, experts in virology uh, epidemiology and everything close to it like biology as well so sure. it is it is it is hard and uh, from the beginning i was also uh, trying to engage uh, engage a little bit more into science communication Mm-hmm. Uh, with public and the media, uh, and I must say I uh, I was very successful in that because right now I'm giving interviews uh, to like big uh, TV outlets and newspapers almost every day. Oh, I don't know how that happened, <laughs> <laughs> but for example, after this uh, podcast uh, recording, I have Sky News uh, live interviews. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is like a warm up for Sky. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, okay. You know, I'll be asked you know, to give opinions to TV shows and what have you, but what do you wish everyone knew about viruses? Other than the fact that they can't tell the time or the date, and so they don't know when it's supposed to be safe for us to go out. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I wish that uh, just even basics, uh, really, and that, uh, first of all, that viruses evolve like everything mm-hmm. and also that viruses will evolve more if they will uh, infect more people because they cannot evolve without uh, hosts without infecting people that's i think that's the main thing but it would be nice if people just know the basics of biology because they don't <laughs> <laughs> and it would be it would be very nice if people who try to give their opinions or people who try to uh, tell uh, what's true and what's not, uh, at least have some understanding of basic con- basics concept, basic concepts. Because at the moment it's uh, it's just very hard to explain to people how science works, even because sure. because uh, like WHO said that we have pandemic, like coronavirus pandemic, and also infodemic because of all these totally false stuff which is out mm. there especially uh, in the social media. Uh, And it is sometimes even hard for uh, me or other scientists to tell what is true and what's not, because uh, these people who create these fake news try to put some truth 
and just also a little and also a lot of fake stuff and just uh, mix it and then sometimes the stuff which looks uh, real uh, it's not and there is so much stuff out there like that that it is it is sometimes hard even for the experts to say what is what is real and it uh, takes a lot of time uh, for us to just uh, check every single information to see if that's that's true what's what's true what's not and uh, yeah that takes a lot of time sadly nobody pays for it <laughs> yeah it does seem really unfortunate you should have to spend any time at all dealing with with that like this, this deliberate misinformation i mean there's, there's plenty of ignorance sort of genuine honest ignorance like you know most people haven't studied biology to any level and most people haven't ever studied viruses at all I have never studied viruses at all. Um, so, so the question then, I guess, would be, um, okay, you have reputable sources, but the thing is, because people are finding new stuff out all the time, those sources change their opinions. So the stuff they were telling you to do a year ago, they're not telling you to do the same way anymore, right? So, oh, well, obviously they don't know what they're talking about then because the truth is unchanging and... I think that I think that's what maybe bothered me the most because it it reflects a little bit on, or it's like a reflection of what happens in any field where you're learning stuff all the time. Historical martial arts being a great example. I mean, you remember what things were like twenty years ago, right? We knew absolutely nothing. Okay, and so imagine imagine if you you know, you express an opinion in 2004 and you're expected to hold the exact same opinion in 2014, that's just absurd. Yeah, right? that's true. And that's that's the problem as well uh, because people uh, people don't know how science works. Uh, and for them, uh, if something uh, is like, is if experts say one thing and say that's the fact, that's how it is, or that's based on uh, what we know right now, in their minds, it is... No, that's that's unchangeable, as you said, and that's that's exactly how it is. But science is something which changes all the time. With more data, uh, the, the science will also change how we understand things. Uh, and unfortunately, people are unaware of that and not familiar with the ways science works. And for them, it makes makes the science less. Uh, at least makes the experts maybe uh, less uh, authoritative. They, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's the right word. Okay, so you, you suggest that people don't know how science works. I have a, a vague idea of how science works. I've read a bunch of books. I did some science at university, but it was a long time ago. So, uh, for my benefit and for the listeners who are perhaps not professional scientists, um, how does science work? Well, that's that's a very very broad question, you know. Uh, so it's it depends on the science. But if we are talking about biological sciences, for example, or let's, the, let's let's simplify things and say, how do biological sciences work? Uh, yes. Yeah, so again, with more, if we look at the new concept, uh, the our first hypothesis might not be true. Our first ideas might not be true, uh, but we need to check if that's that's how it works. So we are just performing experiments or observations or, or things like that. Uh, in the beginning, 
these observations or these data might confirm our hypothesis because we've uh, seen uh, the, what we are observing only on small, a small sample of data. So that might be true to some extent, but if we will make the sample bigger uh, and bigger uh, and we have more and more data, uh, we might see the trend change. Uh, and then we will see that our initial hypothesis was not true. But that needs time and that needs a lot of work. And we can see that also with viruses and how we understand pandemics, epidemics. Uh, if, if we want to compare, for example, pandemics uh, right now with novel coronavirus, it was it's novel coronavirus because we uh, it's with us. It's in a human population only for one and one year and eight months, which is not so long. Uh, and with influenza virus, we have a lot of data at the moment for from many many years. For for we were observing it for at least I think fifty or sixty years, like in a proper way. <laughs> and uh, fr from these sixty years, we can see the trends. Uh, in a lot clearer way than from like one and a half year or one and a year and eight months, uh, okay. which we seen uh, in this coronavirus pandemic. So unfortunately, when it goes to coronaviruses, we still don't have answers for many questions, uh, but hopefully we'll get them with time. Uh, but yeah, that's that's still with viruses. It's still very hard. Okay. Um, I think perhaps the thing I want to just amplify is you have a hypothesis, so you test it. So the hypothesis, you have to be able to falsify that hypothesis, right? You have to be able to prove it wrong. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, otherwise, it doesn't work as a hypothesis. Yes. And early stage experiments may appear to confirm the hypothesis. And so you get all excited and, you know, naughty newspapers run irresponsible headlines and then as more data comes in you find out that no actually that hypothesis is incorrect yes i mean okay. it can be also the other way around maybe more data will come in and the hypothesis will still will be, be true yeah, yeah. Uh, so that can also happen but the thing is that science change change uh, it's not constant right. it will change if we will get more data i have an analogy for you right if you're interpreting for example one of fiori's plays Right, and you come up with this brilliant idea. Okay, so you test it with your loyal student of many years, and because that loyal student of many years is entirely used to basically making you look good in front of the class because you've demonstrated with them a lot, right? This amazing new technique appears to work, but then when you try it against someone who's actually really trying to hit you, and is not your loyal student of many years, you get smacked in the face, and so you have to go back and perhaps rethink your hypothesis. Is that a reasonable historical martial arts analogy for what we've just discussed? Yes, yes. If you want to have an analogy in martial arts, I think that's, that's the perfect one. Well, yeah, I, honestly, I'm happy to talk virology as much as I am to talk <laughs> swords, but I think, you know, for the average listener, they, they, they're expecting some swords to at least be mentioned every uh, now and then. Yes. Uh, uh, so so if, I can, if I can just, like, you know, keep them happy by, by making a sword analogy here and there. I think I think we can carry on talking about the um, the viral stuff because, and this is fabulous, right? Okay, you are a specialist in virus-like genes in bat genomes, 
actual bats, right? Yes. And, okay, there is a sort of theory that some bloke in China bit the head off a bat and got infected. Well, not necessarily bit the head off a bat, but got infected by a bat and whatever. And I, I've just like, I've lobbed this ball gently in your direction. Do what you like with it. Can I just go it away? No. <laughs> yeah, of course you can. <laughs> no. Uh, when it comes to the theory, uh, this very weird uh, idea people have. Uh, so, zoonotic, so the viruses which are present in animals jump to human population, uh, maybe not all the time, but uh, it happens. Sure. And also with uh, viruses like Ebola, uh, we've seen that. Uh, with coronavirus, it's a bit different because right now it's human virus and not anymore uh, animal virus because it mutated and changed. So right now it's human virus. Uh, but uh, when it goes to coronaviruses, the, their main uh, reservoir species is bat. That's why... Okay. Probably uh, it might have been either uh, this virus jumping to another animal from bats and then by contact with humans, for example, on these wet markets, it got uh, into human population. It's infected a person there uh, because obviously wet markets are now not best known from the hygienic, like, from their Um, hygiene and stuff. I, I think quite a few of the listeners won't know what a wet market is. Oh, okay. Uh, so wet market is these uh, big markets in China where they where they sell animal products, uh, products and live animals. Uh, also, okay. also the exotic ones. Uh, so yeah. Okay. So uh, a, a, the virus went from a bat to some animal, and at one of these wet markets, perhaps it went from that animal into a person, and then it kind of exploded from there. Yes, it might okay. have been the way, uh, the shorter uh, route. It might have ju- just jumped from uh, bat to uh, to the person, but for example, in a cave uh, or somewhere like that, where people have some contact with with uh, bats. But it it I, in China they don't eat bats. No, I know they don't. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but but Ozzy Osbourne has bitten the head off a bat live on stage, so but maybe maybe around. maybe it was maybe it was an Ozzy Osbourne fan. It's, it's, it's not Ozzy Osbourne's fault. <laughs> no, I know it's not. <laughs> um, okay, now this is this is entirely for my own curiosity, but um, from what I understand of what I've read about the research you're doing, um, when a bat is infected by a virus. It copies bits of that virus into its DNA, or bits of the, the virus, viral DNA gets copied into the bat's DNA, and then that provides some kind of like immune capacity later on. Is that have I understood it basically right? Yes, uh, although it's not only in bats. Okay. Uh, it's in, in fact, all the organisms uh, can do that, and we see that also in humans. Uh, we also have some genes. Uh, which help us to uh, fight uh, the uh, infection from, uh, like, the viruses which are out there. Uh, and we just stole it from 
uh, from viruses and used it uh, in our own uh, immunity. Uh, but not only, because we have some other genes uh, which we again stole from viruses after they infected us, uh, which one of uh, them, for example, hel help us uh, memorize things. And You're kidding. Uh, no. Tell uh, me. Uh, explain, explain. This is fascinating. <laughs> I know, that's my research. <laughs> All right, yeah, please, go ahead. So, yeah, uh, I'm talking about the gene, uh, it is called ARC, so like mm -hmm. ARC. Uh, and this gene uh, is a co-opted viral gene, uh, uh, and it uh, makes, uh, it also help, help us memorize things, but also uh, probably help us thinking that and maybe that's why uh like uh, the origin of consciousness yes uh yes exactly <laughs> holy crap it is cool isn't it that, also, is, it, that is incredibly cool so basically some early human got infected by this virus and their body absorbed some of that viral dna into its own genome mm -hmm. and that actually triggered the skills of memorization and thought and what have you maybe not early human but ancestor of humans or okay. something like that uh or, or animals even uh and okay. how, do, how do you know uh how, because uh, there's a lot of techniques to just compare mm -hmm. you're looking through the genome of the of the species of uh of different animals, uh, also it is also in plants, but not, not this exact gene. But I'm talking about uh, these viral genes. So we can look through the genome of uh, certain species, uh, and then you are picking up uh, sequences which are similar to viruses, okay. uh, like genetic uh, sequences which are similar to viruses, and then you can compare these sequences to known viruses. And sometimes they're so similar and there are like some additional features which would tell us that this is, uh, this is a viral sequence, this is like a co-opted viral okay. sequence, which, which is in the, uh, in the genome. There, are, there is a lot of techniques to do that. They're mostly like, uh, mostly bioinformatic uh, and statistical and mathematical modeling. Sure, so. we probably shouldn't go into the details of that because, yes, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, yes, um, I would have difficulty following you. Um, but the, so how, how, how do we know that the art, gene is kind of connected to memory and intelligence and consciousness so this gene uh, in a like very very basic explanation uh, mm -hmm. is involved into crea creating these little vesicles which jumped uh, jumps between neurons in our brain and that's oh, really? how it's, yeah how these uh, how our Thoughts. <laughs> okay. Are okay. So, what do, does that gene do in a virus? Uh, it creates the vesicles which uh, encapsulate the viral genome. Okay. So, the little protein packet that the virus is yeah. running around in. Uh, is, the, yeah. 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 Um, um, it, basically, that's made with the same. The same gene enables the virus to build that as in our brains enables yeah. us to make those little packets that fly around and holy yeah, crap 
I had no idea that this was going to be such an interesting interview. <laughs> or that we'd spend most of it on viruses. Um, listeners, bear with me. I mean, no, no, it's just fantastic. Um, okay. Now, uh, you probably know that I have patrons who support the show. And one of the things that they get to do is to like suggest questions for guests. And, you know, as regular listeners will already know, and as obviously you know, um, but new listeners might not, is that all my guests also get to see their questions in advance and you don't have to answer anything that you don't want to answer. Um, so, but you know, this, this made, apparently made the list. So one of my patients asks, um, well, she's asking about inclusivity in the lab, such as making labs accessible for disabled people. And so I imagine you have a lot of experience in, in labs, so you can maybe speak to that. And I'm curious as to how that extends into the historical martial arts environment as well. So um, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, that's a tricky question. Obviously, sure. uh, uh, in other universities uh, at the moment, inclusivity when it goes to disabled pe pe uh, people uh, is very important. And most of the labs, which are new labs, which are built, uh, they're trying to build them in a way that everybody can get to the lab, everybody can work. Uh, and I think that's, that's very good. In some other older labs out there, uh, unfortunately, uh, there is uh, there is uh, there is nothing like that. But I think that the things that right now are changing. At least I can uh, speak only for the UK, obviously, uh, because I work m mainly here. Uh, but uh, the things in science, at least, uh, trying to be very very inclusive. Uh, and yeah, so for science, I can say that for martial arts, it's it's also hard because obviously many of us uh, who teach uh, don't have uh, formal uh, education in teaching, maybe sure. like that. Yeah, I don't. Um, yeah, me too. Uh, apart from teaching at the university courses in biology or something uh, but that's not the same as teaching movement and, no. and uh, fencing and martial arts uh, so that's that's something which uh, I think is uh, might be missing because with uh, disabled people uh, it's you need to understand that they need some other um, exercises and you sure. need to be more careful and I think that's for in these cases, this uh, at least edu formal education in um, some kind of I don't know movement or physical education uh, would be quite quite good. I would be a bit worried and scared uh, to that I will just mm, injure such a person. Uh, okay, um, I've taught people with various disabilities um, and I have no formal training in it at all and so what I did is I make it absolutely clear that mm -hmm. if there's an exercise that we're doing that's not right for them they shouldn't do it and I tell that to older students you, know, you might have a slightly dodgy knee not actually disabled but maybe a deep squat is bad for you so you shouldn't do it um, <clears throat> so the first thing for me was like normalizing adjusting what we're doing 
and not having to like slavishly copy everything that the instructor does or you get shouted at. That's like the first thing. And then, I mean, yeah, the disabled people who've come to me for training have all been really interested in swords, obviously, um, but also vastly more experienced in their disability than anybody else. So I just ask them, you know, what can they do? How do they want to approach this? And so I provide like the historical and the martial side of it. And they tell me how they can apply that with the disabilities they have. That's, Um, that's, yeah, that's, I think that's a very good approach. Uh, And I think that's since in martial arts, arts, we see so many different people because obviously there are people who done some training before there are people who never even uh, sure. do anything else than walking from work to, to 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 their home and they don't do any other exercises uh, we need to be quite flexible when it goes to the thinking about the levels right uh, yeah. and we're not training people um to have a Kind of professional career making tons of money as an exponent of that particular art like unlike yeah. unlike for example perhaps a gymnastics coach where you know you can actually make a living as a world-class gymnast if you get that that far yeah um so it doesn't actually matter how good a person gets by any sort of objective standard of skill mm-hmm. um because there is no real objective standard and you know if they're if they are enjoying what they're doing and they are improving from their own perspective, that's more than sufficient, I would say. No, that's that's right. Uh, from my own experience, because uh, obviously that's not something uh, very. Uh, I wouldn't compare it to the like the full disability person on the, no, like, sure. who couldn't walk, but I, for example, I cannot see on one eye, okay. uh, uh, which is a bit uh, hard when you think about fencing. Yeah, yeah, because you've only got one eye left. <laughs> I actually, I had a student in a class I was teaching a few weeks ago, and there weren't enough, like, fencing masks and what have you, so we were doing stuff slowly and carefully. It was, it was should we say, reasonably safe, but he went off to the side and was basically doing something else with somebody else. And I came over to find out you know, what was what was going on. And he's like, I've lost the vision in this eye. I can't afford to risk that one. So I'm just going to do this instead. Is that right? And I was like, yeah, fine. Okay. Let me know if you need any help and off you go. Um, yeah. Yeah. So when, when it goes to like being one eye, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it's, you don't have this depth perception as well. Yeah, and sure. I found that when instructor didn't really know about that or didn't, think about that uh, during training, I was getting quite annoyed. Uh, not at the instructor, but at myself that I cannot sure. do something or something is not working. So I think also that we should take that in into consideration when train people like a- that. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, that's lack of depth perception is an interesting problem because, you know, you can see uh, I've, I've done experiments with like fencing with a one eye blacked out and stuff so you know I've, I, I don't know what it's like not to lack vision in one eye but I, I know what it's like to fence without depth perception and it's really hard <laughs> um, so what do you do if you don't mind my asking what do you do 
So let's say you're fencing rapier, for example, and you are, you know, what, what do you measure the distance with? How do you make sure you're standing in the right place? That's, that's something which I don't even right now uh, notice. I think it's more of a... I just learned to try to okay. uh, just compensate for that. Uh, and I don't even... It, for me, it's even hard to say how I'm comp compensating for that, but it works. But it's <laughs> worth like okay. 20, 20 years. Right, before. yeah, fair enough. So, so you <laughs> just sort of... You have these like unconscious workarounds and... Yeah, uh, okay. things like that. I also tend to be quite aggressive fencer and uh, shorten the distance very quickly. Uh, ah, okay. <laughs> that would help. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> Excellent. Um, okay. Now, um, cookery. There's a sudden left turn out of nowhere. We talked about viruses, we talked about fencing, we talked about fencing with one eye. Um, cookery. The corgi, the princess, and the kitchen. Yes. Okay. <laughs> now, people who've been in my classes and who may maybe regular listeners, I used to be a cabinet maker, and I'm forever making analogies for you know, making things out of wood is exactly like historical martial arts, which, strictly speaking, is not, but... There are so many, there are so many um, sort of crossovers and what have you. Actually, funnily enough, when I was doing like physiology and what have you at university, I was constantly thinking about things like how enzymes, like a, how a, an amylase enzyme will sit on a starch thing. and what, It's like, okay, it's built the right shape out of these amino acids, creating this exact, which is exactly like how you put together a piece of furniture and it's, it's shape that makes it work. So... Um, so you know, I'm 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 from I'm I'm an, I'm an analogy person. Um, so, do cookery and swordsmanship complement each other? I would say I, I never thought about it like that, and I would say that cooking is more like science. So I'm afraid I will go back to virology. <laughs> okay. Ah. Uh, uh? Yeah. No, I have a brilliant, brilliant book. Uh, you must know it. Um, it's called On Food and Cooking by... Ah, it's, it's, like, it's like the origin of the whole molecular gastronomy movement. It's absolutely I brilliant. That. I haven't read it. I, I, I heard about that. Um, I, 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 I will look it up and put it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, um, and I'll send you a link before that, obviously. Yes, please. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, I would say that I, I never had... Uh, I never thought about sword fighting as, as cooking. So I, I'm not sure if I can say anything about <laughs> that. Uh, but again, I would say that cooking is, is, is a science in a way. Like sure. there is a lot of chemistry. There is, there is physics. Yeah. Um, so uh, that would be similar to science. Okay. But also like, well, I guess like science, you have to have that kind of artistic flair. Like uh, yeah. You need to have like flashes of insight and oh, what if we try this with that and you know that, that's that's uh, that's right. Uh, in that sense, yes, of course, that would be very similar to every art. If 
we can say that cooking is also an art. If we will see all these all these chefs out there making these very weird dishes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so do you actually have a corgi? Yes, uh, she's. Oh, she's sleeping behind you. Oh, okay, yes, we have we have a floof on the show. It's a very cute sleeping corgi sleeping under a table. Yes, she's she's very old right now. She's thirteen years thirteen years old. That's pretty old. Uh, okay, yeah, so yeah. Are, are you the princess then? Uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, my family kind of uh, is from Lithuania, where. They had a title, yes. Okay, so so the corgi is the actual corgi, and and you're the princess, and the kitchen. So what 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 is? I mean, okay, for people who don't know what on earth I'm talking about, what's this corgi princess kitchen thing? Okay, what is sorry. the corgi, the princess, and the kitchen? So it's my cooking blog. Uh, okay. I uh, I stopped. Uh, I have it's on Instagram and also uh, on Facebook, but I'm planning to make a proper page at some point. Okay. I needed to stop uh, doing it. For, I'm still cooking. I'm cooking every day. Why well, um, eat, right? <laughs> yes, but you can also, you know, buy something in uh, Sainsbury's or Tesco or other shop. But I, I really hate the takeaways. So. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I'm. I'm still cooking. I just don't have time to take photos and and uh, make descriptions because writing a blog takes a lot of time. It really but, does. Uh, yes, you probably know. I do know. <laughs> I, I've had a blog for about ten years, and yeah, it takes a lot of time. So uh, I, I'm planning to start doing that again. I just because I was doing my uh, doctorate, uh, I'm fin- I was finishing my doctorate. I just didn't have time at all so sure. I needed to stop for a couple of years but right now it's finished and I have my uh, defense in on the 30th of September so. oh good luck okay all right shall I, shall I tell you about my first defense <laughs> I got a, I got an absolute um, my, okay my external examiner very politely very correctly tore me a new one i i nearly died <laughs> right it was it, it was just the most horrific experience but i was i just managed to get onto the okay make these corrections and we'll re-examine you right so i did i made the corrections and like there's all sorts of like problems finding another because that external examiner couldn't do it again for some reason and you know, stuff happens, what have you. And they finally found another external examiner and I kind of made it through on the second attempt. But, okay. The most useful thing was when I was going off for the second time, absolutely terrified because I thought I was going to get slaughtered again. Right? My wife said to me, it's all right, darling. It doesn't matter whether you pass or fail because no matter what happens, I'm never calling you Dr. Windsor. And I was like, oh, wow, fair enough. <laughs> and I just relaxed completely. <laughs> well, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. So, actually, so actually, by the time this episode comes out, you will have had your defence, I suspect. I'm not um, quite sure. It'll be either slightly before or slightly after. So I, w- I will check in with you and, and see whether we need to um, upgrade the, <laughs> the title be, for the show. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully. Yeah. Really well. Good luck, um, and and this is for your 
your um, viruses in bats research. Yes, yes. Okay. (laughs) Fantastic. All right. And I have a couple of questions that I ask everyone. Um, I don't know. You probably haven't listened to the show, have you? I didn't have time. No, no, that's fine. Most most of my guests don't listen to the show. In fact, (laughs) I have noticed that most people on the planet don't listen to the show. Okay. <laughs> right? It's fine. I, I don't mind. Because um, the people who do listen to it seem to really like it. So it's, that, that's enough. All right. Okay. So um, first question, what is the best idea you have never acted on? Yeah, I was thinking about this question uh, mm-hmm. when you sent it to me. And then I thought I act on almost all my ideas, which is probably not good. No, it's very good. Well, okay. About, I think it's, it's coming up to about half of my guests answer with something like that. Because, and I think it's the sort of people who, who I end up interviewing tend to have done things, interesting things that I'll have noticed or, or other people have noticed and, and said, Guy, you've really got to get this person on the show. Um, and that comes from acting on ideas generally. Um, so there, there isn't any sort of little passion project in the back of your head that you, you sort of... That's, that's really... You know, there are things which I wanted to do, but right now, in retrospect, I, I don't think that these, were, uh, these would be a good idea. Okay. Uh, so uh, when you ask me about the best ideas, mm, then I, I've done quite a lot of things I, I came up with. When it goes to the ideas which uh, probably, in retrospect, wouldn't be that good, uh, I, for example, uh, haven't bought a horse, even though I was planning. <laughs> ah, horses are lovely. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I take it you ride, yeah? Uh, well, for a while right now, I didn't have opportunity because I was sure. doing my research, but I really want to go back to it. I, I was writing since I was uh, like 12 years old. Okay. Um, okay. If, if anyone's listening to the show who lives near Oxford and has a horse that Amelia could borrow, that would be lovely. Just get in touch. Yeah, and I'll... yeah please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, but horses are like ridiculously expensive to keep and look after and i have a friend that jason kingsley who has modern tv history uh, history mm-hmm. youtube channel thing um and yeah he has i think like seven or eight horses and he spends about four or five hours a day looking after the horses yeah, that's that's also the problem. That's they're quite like high maintenance, uh, high maintenance. They are very, yeah, which is why rich people had them, and then they had poor people to look after them. For yeah. Them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. Uh, so, but at least it's lower maintenance than children. So true, true. I've looked <laughs> after both. I I've never owned a horse, but I have um, some experience of, of horses and. I have two kids and yeah, particularly in the early days, by the time they get to like 12, 13, it's actually pretty, they're pretty low maintenance. Well, it's minor. Um, but yeah, when they're little, they are. <laughs> okay. When, when somebody who doesn't have kids says they are either tired or busy, us parents 
we just kind of smile and nod and yeah okay but a bit like a bit like you listening to somebody talking about um virology who has got all of their information from facebook <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I wanted to mention that. That might be quite a similar situation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. All right, so my last question. Um, if you had an unreasonably large sum of money to spend on improving historical martial arts worldwide, and if you want to say, actually, I'd spend it on virology instead, that's fine, how would you spend it? No, I think I have, I have, I, I love virology, but I have enough of virology right now, so I can, I can spend it on, on swords. Uh, okay. I think, uh, but worldwide, hmm. Yeah, um, the thing is, you can't, you can't just buy yourself some nice swords with the money. You actually have to, it, it, you, you've, you've been in the historical martial arts world for a while, you have seen it, um, and obviously, as with anything, it could be improved in various ways. How would you improve it? You know, uh, as we talked before, it's it's very expensive to get like a permanent hole, uh, yeah. and also I think I would try to make a, like the proper branches of the school in uh, like some places, of course in Oxford, but also around UK but maybe also in Europe, uh, with their own permanent halls, and but not even rented, but just bought. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know people who done that, uh, like not branches, but like at least their schools in, in, the, in the cities. For example, in Warsaw, there is one. Sure. Uh, sure. So do that. And also just to create a safe space, a very inclusive space, also mm-hmm. for like fences, uh, which are in minorities, for example, for women or for non-binary people. Uh, so I would I would try to do that because I think that at the moment there is a bit of a problem. It is better than it was before, sure. but there is a bit of a problem with inclusivity, uh, especially in some parts. Uh, you're being very diplomatic. I am. <laughs> I, know, I know exactly what you're talking about. The oh, average listener see? might not. Well, okay. Why, why do you think this podcast has um, slightly over 50% female guests? No, I'm, I'm, I think right. you are very, very uh, good at that. Because well, I, you know, I was thinking, what the hell can I do about it, right? There's, what, what can I actually do about it? I thought, well... Okay, I'll start a podcast and make sure that the people I invite on are not all middle-aged straight white dudes, right? Because while while a bunch of middle-aged now middle-aged straight white dudes tended to like be like got into this sort of thing a long time ago, and so you know there's they are overrepresented in the kind of the senior levels of the art um, for good historical reasons or sort of for the natural reasons, if you like. It it prevents or, or no, not prevents it discourages perhaps people who are not middle aged straight white dudes from taking it up. The visibility is very important. Absolutely, uh, and also uh, we have three schools here in uh, in Oxford, uh, and obviously one is very small and concentrates on on their own thing, on their own stuff like this Napoleonic. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
fighting styles, and there are two bigger ones, uh, my school, and there is another one, Oxford Sword and Stuff. And Oxford Sword and Stuff people are lovely. Uh, they're great. Uh, they started as a very small school, uh, just founded by people who loved sword fighting. They didn't have any money. It was just like study group in the beginning, I think. Uh, and uh, obviously, we had more money from the other branches of our school. Right. Uh, and I noticed that uh, the main core people in the uh, Oxford Sword and Staff, not main core people, maybe the majority of new students are middle-aged white guys because they have more money. Right. Uh, and in our school, uh, the majority uh, of people are students who don't have money, mm-hmm. uh, are younger people and are women. Excellent. Uh, so you can see that the differences. I'm not saying that Oxford certain stuff is doing something wrong. I'm just no, saying no. that because of these uh, differences in like right, because your club of, because your club has the money to subsidize yes the beginners so that anyone can start. You yeah. get a much more diverse group. Whereas yeah. if you have to have money to start, you get a much more restricted group. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's very, in this sense, very visible uh, sure. when you compare both clubs in in the same city, really, mm-hmm. and not that far from each other. Uh, we like each other. We don't. Really no, no, I, I yeah, <laughs> I, I, I get it. You're all friends. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, and uh, also, uh, as I said before, visibility is very important, and I was asked. Several times by some uh, some fencers, uh, some instructors, how to make it better, like how to uh, help their club uh, grow, but not only with the students, uh, with male students, mm. but also to uh, attract to their club some other uh, other students, like uh, women or or yeah. like. Other minorities, yeah. uh, not only, for example, white people. So uh, my main, uh, my main, like advice was just find some uh, female uh, woman, sorry, uh, instructor, and like do some classes, for example, with her, uh, or like seminars or mm-hmm. things like that. And so. Your students, or even people who look through your website and see the pictures, see that there, there, there is not only first guys right. there, or not only guys, uh, not only women as uh, students, but there is also you, women can also be instructors. Women can also right. do stuff like that. So that's I think that's important. I, many years ago, uh, I had a meeting with like some of my senior students, um, almost all of whom were men saying, look, why are almost all of you men? What happens to the women? We get like 30, 40% women coming in the beginners courses. Where do they go? What's going wrong? Um, one of my students said, well, Guy, you always demonstrate with us. I was like, well, yeah, because you're the most technically accomplished. And so I'll get the best technical demonstration with someone with more. And then he said, but, okay, what that does is it, you know, when you demonstrate with someone, you are selecting them out of the student body and you're basically holding them up as an example. Mm-hmm. If you only ever do that with blokes, there will be an assumption that only blokes can get up to that level. 
right? Even if it's not spoken, it's just a sort of... And I was like, well, okay. So what if I preferentially demonstrate with women? Um, will you guys be all right with that? And they're like, yeah, that's fine. So, okay, and I tried it. And within a year, we had significantly increased the proportion of women who were staying on past the beginning schools. It's like, but, you know, no one told me this at the beginning. I didn't know. So for the first 10 years or so, I was like, you know, putting, prioritizing like the best technical demonstration over the demonstration that's going to get the results I actually want in the student body. Yeah, uh, it is It is a problem that uh, sometimes instructors... Uh, it's not only instructor problems. Uh, sometimes women uh, are scared uh, mm -hmm. because they think that they need to do it perfectly and they, they compare themselves to the guys there okay. and even the more, uh, like, more accomplished or more experienced fencers and they think that they cannot, cannot demonstrate in front of the class Uh, because they, it won't be perfect, it won't be good, uh, and they are just scared. Uh, and just uh, we mentioned before uh, that I do this uh, science communication for Sky News and stuff like that. Uh, they, I'm probably uh, there not only because I'm amazing expert and virologist, <laughs> but I'm also a woman and not this, uh, just this white middle-aged uh, sure. Oxford professor who people can see on TV. I'm young, <laughs> I'm and and I'm a woman, and that's why they also ask me to comment on these things to to show that in sciences. Women can also be experts. Well, yeah, absolutely. In fact, they can in fencing too, as 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 the like the guest list for my show clearly demonstrates. But also, my first fencing coach was a woman, and it was Gail Rudge, and she was like, obviously, she she was, I guess. Well, to me, she looked ancient. She was probably like forty odd. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> When I was like thirteen, and But and. And, you know, she was a highly skilled fencing coach and I was a complete beginner. So, of course, she could, you know, she felt like just stabbing me, she could, right? So it sort of, I was lucky in that my first exposure to actually having a fencing coach was, it was a woman, so I never got the idea that women can't do it. Yeah. Right? Uh, But that was just luck. That wasn't built into anybody's, like, strategy at all. Um So it's, it's, it's good to build these things in deliberately, I think. It is. Uh, and also, uh, we need to uh, remember, and we're coming to the thing I was, I wanted to mention uh, okay. during, this, during this podcast. We need to remember that, uh, obviously, there are differences, uh, physiological differences mm -hmm. uh, between men and women. Uh, but that doesn't mean that women are inferior fighters uh, in martial arts. Mar martial arts were, like, at least the historical one, uh, were made for people to fight, like, any size of the right. opponent, bigger one, taller one, stronger one, uh, and winning with them. If you do the... Uh, if you do it correctly, you can win with uh, stronger opponents. Absolutely. Uh, Uh, so and with the proper technique. Everything changes when you're murdering people with sharp weapons. 
right? Yes. So, so being like bigger and stronger and having more endurance and perhaps being a bit quicker or whatever is a huge advantage, particularly in any kind of sporting combat, yeah. right? But it's much, much less important when sheer viciousness and willingness to kill is like, is actually a relevant factor, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and when, you know, someone can just cut your hamstring. And down yeah. you go, and now you're shorter than they are because you're on the floor because they've cut your hamstring, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. that's yeah. It, it it changes everything when the weapons are real. I think, and I think we get this unfair sort of um, misrepresentation of how important things like size and strength are when the weapons are not sharp. That's right, but you can still work uh, work with that. And Absolutely, of course you can. People are not robots. We are not from like uh, all the men are from one factory and women from the other, and all yeah. our skills and characteristics are the same. There will be guys who are, for example, uh, weaker than some women. There will be women who are stronger than some guys sure. who have uh, like uh, bigger uh, muscle mass. Uh, so it's it's. You know, it differs between people. It's not only that all the women are weaker than men; well, all course, the men yeah. are stronger than women. Uh, if you've ever seen Simone Biles on a mat, you know, you know beyond <laughs> any reasonable shadow of a doubt that that not all women are are weaker than, than men. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. Of course, and and again, even even with that. Uh, Woman, uh, even if you are weaker than your opponent, you can still, with proper technique, you can Stab still win. Stab in the eye. Like the whole Stab point of having a sword yes. is you don't need to be very strong to hit people with it and actually have them die. Yeah, right? yeah, of course. Uh, so, yeah, exactly. With a proper technique, you can still win. Uh, and I don't see why, uh, why this weird notion that uh, women are inferior offenses is there, but, well, I. Uh, I agree with you. I, I agree with you. Um, but it leads me to ask a question. What are your thoughts on having women only tournaments? Or, wim or uh, women's events? Like so you've got the, the open tournament and then you've got the women only tournament. What are your so, thoughts? So uh, I'm, uh, I'm, of course. Uh, I'm really pro women only tournaments because okay. quite a lot of women are just scared uh, fighting uh, men, and I don't see why that why I don't know to push them into uh, open uh, tournaments where again the guys are sometimes quite aggressive, sure. uh, and yeah. that's that's a problem with many tournaments that uh, men can be quite aggressive uh, and hit very hard. Uh, I normally take part in open tournaments and in long sword tournaments and and uh, and also in women tournaments. But uh, I take take part in both, uh, and I must say that uh, I got injured more in women tournaments than oh, really? in open tournaments. Yes. Okay. Uh, but uh, still, uh, there is this. Uh, oh, still. Uh, I don't know if women feel better fighting in women-only tournaments. I don't see why. Why not? Uh, it's 
only like helps promoting going to tournaments. Sure. Uh, we won't have almost any, maybe, well, there will be some, for example, me and other women who take part in open tournaments, but uh, we are the minority there still. Uh, but hopefully, with women tournaments, more women will see that tournaments are not super scary, because even in women tournaments, sometimes uh, women are scared to take part. <laughs> uh, so uh, maybe that will just show that tournaments are, are fun. Uh, they're not only like, uh, I don't know, hitting each other on the head. And then <laughs> um, so yeah, I hope, I hope that that can only help. Uh, I would prefer everybody to fight everybody, but again. Okay, so you see women's tournaments as a useful way of basically getting women who wouldn't go to an open tournament to at least go to a tournament and getting some experience that way, and maybe it will lead to... Yeah, going to open tournaments and seeing yeah. that women also taking part in open tournaments. So I think that's that's quite quite good way of promoting that sure. idea. Okay. Okay, so just to get back to the unreasonably large sum of money. Okay. So you would spend it on creating sales in mm-hmm. um in the UK to start with, but also in Europe. Mm-hmm. And Okay, how would you make sure that the people who are creating the clubs that were going to be in those sales, how would you make sure that they, well, that you didn't end up giving one of these sales to, for example, a white supremacist group? Well, <laughs> I don't know. I never done it. But <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just a thought because it is, it, is it is a tricky problem. But you've no, got loads I... of money. You've got all the money in the world. So you can, you can throw money at the yeah. problem if you need to. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's important to know the people you are uh, giving this position of power to. Yeah. Uh, and uh, not to just like random fencer who might have a lot of medals. Or, I have yes. a thought. I have a thought, right? So you, you, your organization which has all this money is going to be buying all of these beautiful, beautiful, gorgeous, like gothic, Barns and hallways, and, and <laughs> transforming them into into these glorious cells. Some of which will, of course, also have stables attached, so you can do mounted combat and what have you. Of course, right? Yep. But how about if um, the organisations that use the spaces have to um, agree to a code of conduct which is really explicit about um, inclusivity and that sort of thing? With that. Solve the problem. Uh, I think it's it can, but we had that before in the uh, uh, in the UK uh, mm-hmm. as a, like there was organization which was trying to uh, have this code of conduct for all the clubs which mm-hmm. joined it, uh, and it didn't work very well in the end. But not because uh, people were not following it; just clubs uh, weren't joining. <laughs> Uh, and that was that was the problem i think if that will be like some bigger organization which owns the clubs that might work because they would be forced but also if 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 the the, okay joining some random organization let's say you have your own fencing club as you do and you choose to join some like umbrella type organization and you get some maybe insurance and admin and whatever. And it's, it's kind of, it's not really such a big deal. But if 
if the organization is providing you with a gorgeous sal to train in where you can yeah. leave all your gear and it's perfectly safe and everything i think i think getting people to sign up would not be a problem no i i agree i think that will be quite quite uh, easy then yeah. uh, so the thing is only to that they need to follow follow it uh, and yeah. obviously uh, that would be something which needs to be uh, controlled <laughs> i don't know if that's the wor- right word because i don't want to <laughs> okay um I, I don't know how Polish is related to Swedish, but I've, I've noticed a lot of, in a lot of Eastern European conversations I've had with, well, conversations with Eastern European people, controlled um, is often used to mean to check, whereas in English it means to literally take control of. And so like, like, yeah. like passport control in, mm-hmm. in Stockholm, for example, when you fly in, it's like controllare or something, and it means like to check. No, you are as right. Uh, as I said, it's probably not the right word, so it Maybe should be check. yeah, checked every now and then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one possibility would be um, if they kept, you know, they have like the personal data of the people in the clubs and that's anonymized, but the sort of demographic statistics are, and you need to have a certain proportion of, for example, women in the club to keep your lease. For instance. Yeah, Maybe. yeah. So, so that that gets into a legal quagmire, though. It is, it, it is. Really <laughs> well, tell you what you do, tell you what you do. With all this money, you also have an entire team of lawyers to manage it oh, for perfect. you. Perfect, <laughs> like, thank no, you. No, don't give money to lawyers. Never give money to lawyers. <laughs> and, unless, you're, unless you're being accused of a crime you didn't commit, in which case, give money to lawyers. But other than that, no. <laughs> what about the crime I did commit <laughs> well then you need to pay for the lawyer even more and hopefully the crime was very lucrative so you can afford a good one <laughs> brilliant alright okay uh, well <laughs> thank you very much for joining me today Amelia it's been a delight talking to you thank you very much it was, it was very fun talking to you <laughs> thanks for listening I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Amelia You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. And you can join us there for behind the scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. Future guests that my patrons have recently been asked to submit questions for include Toby Capwell of the Wallace Collection and Jason Kingsley of the Modern History Channel and also CEO of Rebellion Games. So getting an advanced peek as to who is coming on the show and being able to have your curiosity satisfied at least as far as reasonably possible. Put it this way, patrons can suggest questions. I will forward them if they are at least vaguely appropriate. And the guest always has the option to decline. So I can't promise, but I can certainly try. If that sounds like your sort of thing, join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. And tune in next week. Next week's episode is going to be a little bit different, partly because of the dates and partly for other reasons. Uh, Next week's Friday episode of the sword guy will be the October challenge. 
What, you may very well ask, is the October challenge? Well, since the beginning of this year, I took a firm stance against the foolishness of New Year's resolutions and instead have issued a challenge every month, which began with how to break a habit and how to create a habit and has included things like prioritizing sleep, prioritizing strength training, prioritizing what you eat, that sort of thing. To find out what this month's, or rather next month's challenge will be, you need to tune in next week, and I will talk you through it in detail. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts from, and while you're there, please do rate it and even leave a review. It really, really helps. And perhaps the absolute best thing you could do for the show is if you think of somebody who you know would like this particular episode, then please forward it to them. A personal recommendation is absolutely the best way to spread the word. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week.